Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This is the uh, half moon night uh, in the month of November and uh, heading towards the Amravati Katina ceremony. Uh, This is uh, a month where we have many of these uh, events. Uh, Last Sunday was the one at uh, Chittaviveka and then the um, couple of weeks before that I was at the Katina uh, at uh, Abhayagiri Monastery, California. And uh, at each of these uh, events, uh, probably many of us have, have been attending these uh, this year and other years, and uh, familiar uh, to some degree with the uh, stories behind the foundation of the Katina as a ceremony or the, uh, the principles behind it. Uh, essentially, the... Uh, uh, the ceremony is one where um, the community, the monastic community, who has been residing together for the period of, of the rains, the three months from the, the full moon of July to the full moon of October, uh, a group of, of summoners, of uh, Buddhist monastics, have been residing together. And at the end of that time, before people separate and uh, go their separate ways, uh, the uh, the Buddha established this uh, tradition, this way of uh, creating an occasion for the lay community to offer cloth to help uh, support the monastic community. And then the uh, the Sangha would uh, receive the cloth and then uh, designate one person to be um, say, appropriate to um, provide a, a robe for. And then uh, the, the, ro- the robe cloth that's given on the Katina uh, ceremony uh, on that occasion, is then so uh, is marked up and cut and sewn and dyed into uh, and then offered and determined as a, a robe, one of the three uh, chivara, one of the, the robes before dawn of the next day. So that the uh, uh, during the the rains retreat, usually one puts aside the uh, sort of standard. Um, uh, practices of, say, making robes or um, doing a a lot of, uh, say, um, uh, extra tasks in terms of looking after your own equipment, your own own possessions. As a monastic, you put that aside uh, for a a period of time to pay attention uh, specifically to to meditation and to studying the Vinaya discipline. And so that the understanding is that you, having let your robes just um, go their own way. You know, we have rules that require us to repair holes in our robes if they are bigger than a a, um, a bed bug, or uh, <laughs> if they are about the size of a match head. Uh, if they are more than seven threads across, then you have to repair them before dawn of the next day. Uh, but uh, generally, if there's wear and tear on your robes, you don't uh, make new robes, or you don't uh, go about seeking for for fresh cloth and such like until the the retreat season is over. So the Buddha established this as an occasion for people to bring cloth to the monastery so that uh, a a robe could be made for one designated individual, but also so that the Sangha could be provided for and could uh, create uh, new robes, fresh robes to go traveling in. And so that uh, if their robes were, were getting thin and worn out, then they could be recycled moved on to other tasks like being turned into dust sheets or foot, uh, foot wiping rags and such like. And uh, the, uh, the Sangha could equip itself with, with uh, fresh robes to cover themselves with and then go about their, their travels in a, in a way that uh, is not going to be too arduous or difficult looking after your robes while you're on the road. So that, uh, 
that format or that kind of background to the to the katina ceremony is is well known to us and the word katina uh, again as people probably know is the name of the uh, the frame like a in modern times what's called a quilting frame if you if you've ever done any quilting or you've seen that being done uh, on a quilting frame you have different patches different pieces of cloth that are, are laid out together and can be Kind of stretched and, and uh, straightened so that they can easily be sewn together. So a katina was a frame in which the various pieces of, uh, of cloth that were put together to make a robe uh, would be able to be stretched out and made kind of even and tidy so that they could be more efficiently sewn uh, together. And of course in the Buddha's time all the sewing was done by hand and also it meant that you could have quite a few people uh, sewing the same robe all, all at the same time. Now we uh, we have as our goal in in monastic life in the Buddha's teaching the the goal of the realization of nibbana. It's a it's a a, a non material goal. Yeah, the nibbana is a a, a quality of the uh, the mental domain, if you like, it's a, a quality of mind, and so in some respects, that realization of nibbana is not limited or uh, by the material world. It's not limited by the sense world. But uh, the Buddha was very um, uh, well aware of our life as living beings that we need to eat, we need to find shelter, we need medicine when we're sick, and we need clothing to cover our body to protect us from the elements and for the sake of modesty and such like. So uh, when we, we go forth as summoners, as a, as a novice, as a siladara, as a bhikkhu in uh, different forms of ordination, then there is this, uh, uh, say, recognition at the, uh, at the time of going forth of, yes, there's the... Uh, the purpose of going forth, sabaduka nisarana nibbana sachikarnataya, for the sake of crossing over, for letting go of all suffering, all dissatisfaction, nibbana sachikarnataya, for the sake of realizing nibbana. That, that's why we go forth. But as we go forth, then the Buddha also gave this reflection uh, and the encouragement for <coughs> recognizing the, the physical dependencies that we have to reflect upon the, the four requisites. So part of the, the, um, the ordination ceremony is the, the, what's called the anusasana, the, 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 the instruction from the acharya on the, uh, the, say, the four supports for one's life. Even if you're trying to live a life based on spiritual development, Still, we have a body. We, we live in the world. We need to breathe. We need to eat. We live amongst other human beings. Uh, we live in, in, with a, a body that is affected by the elements. So uh, there is the need for physical food, for uh, uh, a shelter from the weather, for uh, clothing, uh, cloth to cover the body, and medicine for, for illness. So this... Uh, the katina, uh, the katina ceremony, and the, the role of robes in our life is part of that recognition of our, uh, say, dependency on the the, uh, the physical realm in order to help that uh, non-physical goal to be realized, in order to help the the quality of nibbana to be realized, to be uh, to be embodied, then. There needs to be that, say, a, a skillful relationship to the material world, and the, so that the this quality of robes, and the way that the, the robes are put together, there there's different aspects to this that, say, uh, one can reflect on to see how they the robes support the uh, the aim, the intention of going forth, of practicing as a as a Buddhist uh, a follower of the a follower of the Buddha's way. The um, the robe uh, again, as most people are probably aware, these uh, traditional robes of ours. The this is a design that was created by the venerable Ananda in the earliest times. The the Buddha's disciples would just collect pieces of cloth and stitch them together, uh, just according to uh, what shape they were or however they could be um, sort of pieced. Uh, 
uh, pieced together and uh, sewn so that they would make a, a rectangular robe. But uh, uh, it seems that the the, the Buddha uh, felt that the the sangha was, could be a little bit tidier, a little bit more, say, uh, neatly uh, uh, neatly clad. And so one time he was walking in the hills around uh, Magadha and uh, looking down over the rice fields in the land of Magadha. Um, then uh, the Buddha said to Ananda, "You see these fields laid out in strips, laid out in squares, with the kind of." Uh, the paddy fields and the, th- the, s- the thin mud walls between them, that it would be good if you designed a, a form for the robe that is uh, of a similar pattern, laid out in strips, laid out in squares. And so then Venerable Ananda uh, created this kind of design with the, the, the narrow strips, the kusis, and then the, the, the panels, the kundas, uh, and uh, <clears throat> and this uh, the proportions uh, of the the kusis and the kundas the, the strips uh, representing the mud walls and then the kundas representing the paddy fields and this is the uh, the design that has been used ever since so this is one of the longest lasting fashions established two and a half thousand years ago that's still in vogue 25 centuries later so if you it's a uh, another successful <laughs> Choice of the of the Buddha have a, a fashion that lasts twenty five centuries is quite an achievement. So uh, this is if you have small pieces of cloth, then you'd include them in the in the kusis. If you have larger pieces, then you'd make them into the the kundas, the panels. Then you have a border an anawata uh, around the edge, so where the the edge of the of the robe that gets the most wear and tear. Then that's a a double thickness, um, an extra thickness to to make it a bit more sturdy. Oh, the uh, so in the original times, then the robe would always be made out of scraps of thrown away cloth or uh, smaller pieces of cloth, and then stitched together. And then the, this was systematized in this form that was invented by Venerable Ananda. And so, when the the the, the robe would be laid out on the katina frame, uh, then it would be you know the smaller parts would be in these kusi, in the kusis in the the thin strips, and the larger parts in the the kundas, and then formed into this uh, these symmetrical patterns. And so <clears throat> this uh, takes uh, quite a bit of skill to, to put everything together. But it, it's, uh, I feel also with, with the katina, one of the aspects of the, the katina tradition is that the different members of the monastic community all lend a hand to put the robe uh, together so that in our robe you have lots of separate individual parts and they're, they're trimmed up and squared off and and uh, aligned so that the, uh, all those different parts uh, are then able to be joined together in a, a harmonious and well-integrated whole. So uh, if you're making a robe out of scraps of cloth, then of course you've got different kinds of cloth, maybe bits of cotton or bits of wool or bits of silk, or bits of hemp, and they're going to be different textures. Uh, nowadays we generally make a robe just of, uh, rather than from scraps, we uh, make it from a single kind of cloth. But uh, I feel this is uh, the, the putting of together of a robe um, uh, of different sizes of cloth, different pieces, different textures, different forms, and originally it will be different colors. So it would take dye in different ways. This is very much like community life, that uh, in a monastery we have um, people of many, many different characters. We have uh, different personalities, different nationalities, different ages, different genders, different dispositions. You have the people who are uh, really brainy intellectuals who'd like to stop thinking so much, and people who are not so brainy uh, who would really like to be able to think a bit more, <laughs> that uh, regret not having a university education. Others regret having a university education. <laughs> Others who are really not very good with their hands and are kind of hopeless with any kind of construction or anything to do with uh, anything mechanical with the physical world. Others uh, find that they're too good with the physical world and they've got far too many skills in which they were less less competent at, uh, and uh, didn't have so many uh, things that they were uh, they were gifted at they have uh, <clears throat> a whole variety of different uh, di- uh, different characters different uh, dispositions people who are quiet people who are outspoken people who are shy people who are let's say uh, eager to join uh, and chat with others 
So just like a, a, a robe is put together of, of small pieces, large pieces, uh, thin pieces, thick pieces, if it's well, uh, well ordered and well, well formed and uh, put together in a skillful way, you get a well, a well made robe, a, a beautifully structured robe put together in a, in a harmonious and useful form. And so our community life is like that. There's, uh, every, everybody belongs. Everybody is part of the fabric of the, the monastery, of the community, whether you're a layperson or monastic, whether you're a woman, you're a man, you're older, you're younger, you're, uh, <coughs> you, whatever particular character you have, whatever particular gifts you have, then uh, there's a place for us. There's a place for, for everybody uh, to, to fit in uh, for short periods of time, long periods of time. Uh, you know, there's a, a way that we can all fit together, like the different aspects of a, of a, a patchwork robe. They can all fit t- together. One of the, the things when ma- making a robe, particularly the, not just the katina robe, but any kind of robe making, is that it's very easy to make mistakes. Uh, as many stories of uh, the katina day when you uh, <clears throat> the beautiful cloth has been offered and everyone joins together, marking it up and cutting it and sewing it, and you're really pleased. Like, wow, this is really great. The, the cloth got offered at one at one p.m. and you know, it's only half past five, and the, you know the robe's already. Is already cut and and, uh, and you know, marked and, and cut and sewn. Oh, this is great. All we have to do is dye it. Then you get out the the dye pot, put it in the dye pot, and you realize, oh, this is synthetic cloth. <laughs> it's not taking the dye. Aha! <laughs> ah, we didn't uh, we didn't test for uh, whether it was uh, cotton or whether it was synthetic. Aha! So then you have to hold, start from you know find another piece of uh, of uh, robe cloth that's been offered that day something that will take the dye start the whole thing all over again that has happened in the past in my experience or another uh, no, another common experience is that uh, you divide the cloth into two pieces so you have two teams sharing the, the sewing together and then you know, team A has you know they have it marked up in one form, and then Team B has the the other half of the robe marked up in their form. And everyone is working uh, working diligently away to um, to um, uh, say do their pieces of the robe, and then uh, Team A gets their piece right, and Team B gets their piece right, and then you get a piece A and piece B, and you put them together, and you realize ah, there's no way that these actually fit with each other. <laughs> The uh, the inside of one is the outside of the other. Like, how do we do that? <laughs> Sometimes it's after you've sewn it together and you realise these don't fit. <laughs> oh, this is this is not this is not an acceptable pattern. You got uh, you got uh, <clears throat> one of the pieces is upside down or inside out, and you have to cut it apart, sew it all over again. Other times uh, you, you get, finally get the rope finished, but it's, it's already about midnight by then. And you have to have all the Sangha members gather together for the robe offering ceremony. And uh, one Sangha member is missing. Like, where is Venerable so-and-so? <laughs> Everyone has to be here. Uh, where, where is he? <laughs> There's one monk missing. Has anyone seen him? You, you look in the rooms, you look in the offices, you look in the cupboards, you know. Monk so and so is 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 not to be found anywhere. This ha- again has happened, and then then um, after much discussion, you say, "Okay, well, it's just, we'll just it's half past one in the morning. We've been looking for over an hour. We can't find him. So uh, uh, he's usually very diligent, and so we'll just ho- hold the ceremony anyway, and just uh, uh, hope for the best that he's not within a, within a uh, he's not too close to the the Sema boundary, the, the boundary where you have the uh, the monastic." Uh, say, um, legal functions within the, the SEMA boundary. And then you find out that the Venerable One was sleeping in the front seat of the van, <laughs> thinking, I'll, I'll just have a nap here, because it's really close to the, the Dhamma Hall, but uh, you know, I'm bound to hear it if they ring the bell. But uh, the Venerable One did not hear the bell. <laughs> was sleeping in the van where no one, no one looked for him. So was uh, very embarrassed after that, and has never been able to forget it ever since. <laughs> So, the <clears throat> mistakes happen. Things, uh, things are, are that were uh, you know, all carefully planned out and go wrong. Uh, it, and, and again, in monastic life, the, sewing robes and, and living in the monastery is uh, very, very comparable with the best of intentions. 
we make mistakes. We annoy each other. We we do things that uh, offend our, our dear friends and companions in the holy life. The lay people offend the monastics, or the monastic offends the lay people, or the, and you know, the junior monk offends the senior monk, or the senior monk uh, offends the junior monk, or upsets the anagarika, or senior nun if it, uh, annoys the anagarika, or the anagarika upsets the junior nuns. I'm not keeping. I'm not spying on anybody. <laughs> this is just. The law of averages, you know, this is how it is in any monastery. So we make mistakes. We, we, we sew things together back to front. Uh, we can't, we, we make a, uh, we carefully measure everything. Then we get the scissors out, cut. Damn. <laughs> that was the piece I wasn't supposed to cut. Ah. This is how it goes. Yeah. Myself, I have very poor hand-eye coordination, so it's, it's, I've always found it really difficult to either cut wood in a straight line or sew, a, sew in a straight line. Um, my eye and my hands don't, don't kind of liaise with each other very well. <laughs> so I'm always impressed when, uh, uh, when people like Ajahn Hasakom is a kind of champion. Like a, his, his lines of sewing are like a laser beam. Like, wow, how does he do that? That's not done. This wasn't done by a, some kind of special device, but his his hand is incredibly steady. His lines are absolutely straight. So, wow. But mine are not. <laughs> so numerous times when I've been sewing robes with a machine, then I would, you think, okay, this time I'm going get to get it right. I'm going to really focus. Everything is really, it's ironed, it's folded, it's absolutely straight. Everything has got, it's marked up. I can't get this wrong. And <laughs> it comes out like a kind of drunk snake, you know. So, so we make we make mistakes. One time, uh, uh, when I was up living up in Harnham um, in the mid eighties, I sewed a, a whole chiwara, an upper robe. I was doing it by hand. I, I was hand sewing it just with a needle and thread. Since I wasn't very good with machines, <laughs> I thought I just I just sew a robe by hand. I can. It's much more controllable. It's easier to get things straight. And I, I sewed this this whole robe. It took me weeks and weeks and weeks, um, and it was it was not very. Uh, the material was quite uh, spongy. It was a kind of um, um, sort of a knitted polyester. We had a friend who had a uh, of the Sangha who was a uh, had a factory that made polyester, and he specially dyed this made this sort of monastic colored polyester fabric. But it was a bit kind of spongy and and springy, so it was very hard to get it to, to fold. And, so I had to work really hard to get this, this uh, all the all the lines and the, the panels all kind of neat and tidy. And so I spent you know four months, five months making this robe. Finally, I got it done. I thought, oh, fantastic! At last, the last stitch on the last in, last corner of the border. Ah, thank goodness, that's done. Then I put it on, and it was about six inches too short. It kind of came down to my knees. I thought, what? I thought, no, I just, I, I rolled it wrongly. I'm, I've got to try that again. So I took it off, rolled it, and I thought, it still came up to my knees. I thought, no, I'm doing this wrong. Like maybe I kind of rolled it a little bit less, and, and I did it about four times, five times. I thought, you idiot. <laughs> All those months sewing a robe with the wrong size. Yeah. Didn't, I, didn't I measure it properly when I started out? So this is what happens in community life. With the best intentions, we, we make mistakes. We cut things too short or we put things together in the wrong way. We make mistakes. And so that uh, uh, the, um, the recognition that that line is not straight, <laughs> that robe is too short, okay. So you unpick it and you do it again. Okay, I've, I've sewed this robe that's about six inches too short, okay. Take off the border, put on an extra six inches, Put another border on, <laughs> otherwise it'll always be too short. Yeah, that mistake is not going to correct itself. So similarly with with community life, and one of the aspects of keeping the vasa together, as has uh, been talked about, you know, the uh, the closing ceremonies for the for the rains retreat, we we recognise those mistakes that we make, where we we upset each other, we we fall short, we find ourselves being lazy or selfish or cruel or greedy or, uh, or jealous and hurtful uh, in, the, in various different ways. We, we see the, 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 the wobbly lines that we've sown. We, we see the things that are too short or too long about our conduct. 
And then we we make amends. We we say, okay, that that wasn't done beautifully. Okay, unpick it, do it again. You go to that uh, the person. You say, I'm terribly sorry. The way I spoke to you was really, really cruel, really selfish. I was, I was, uh, 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 say, unkind in the way that I spoke to you. Or I was, I took more than my fair share. I'm sorry. Uh, I was, I was greedy. That wasn't really uh, you know, mine to take. Um, I took more than was really uh, uh, allotted to me. So. You know, please accept my apologies. So that sense of, in terms of making robes, it's a very good teacher in that respect. You, you, you recognize the mistakes that you make, and then you you, you do your your best to to un, unpick it, do it again. And <clears throat> doesn't matter how many times you uh, you get it wrong, you find you can always unpick it and, and try again. You can you can make it good. Uh, I like to to keep my robes until they they fall apart, which my various attendants will be aware of. <laughs> Having looked after my my robes, the last upper robe I had, the last chiwara I had, got retired in September with about had about thirty patches on it by the time it was finally recycled, and um, and, and you know, I like to patch things myself. Uh, and sometimes I'd, I'd ask the attendant to to take care of the patching. Sometimes I'd. I'd have the sort of time and energy to to do it myself, and and uh, again, sometimes you 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 know there's a tear in the robe and a, and a hole has appeared, so you you measure up the size of the patch that you need, and you 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 fold the patch and you kind of uh, crease the edges so it's absolutely rectangular, it's perfectly square, and then you line it up on the robe and you pin it in place so it's pinned absolutely square on the robe, and think, okay, everything is all po- properly rectangular. And then you sew it, and you think, okay, that's done. Whew. Then you look at it, and you go, ah, it's like five degrees off. How did that happen? I measured everything. It was all exactly the right position. How, how did that happen? And so what I would do is I'd get out, my, uh, uh, get out, the, little, get out the scissors, cut the, cut the patch off, uh, re-pin it, double-check, treble-check. Okay, now it's square. Now I'm really sure it's square. And then sew it on again. Uh, Otherwise, you've got to look at a robe that's got a, a patch that's you know, off kilter, you know, is, is, a, is askew, and it won't correct itself on its own. <laughs> so this is, a, again, this, this kind of, um, uh, say, paying attention to the material realm. And you say, well, what's, what has patching your robes got to do with realizing nirvana? Well, you know, the, the, the Buddha's, uh, uh, say, emphasis in his teaching is... Uh, it involves both vijja and charana, both uh, wisdom and awareness, the, the non-material, and charana, our conduct, the, the way that we act in the material world, that the, the two go together, the, the material and the non-material, the imminent, the, the imminent and the transcendent. They, they work together. They, they are uh, intimately connected. And so the, even though the, the purpose of the spiritual life and the Buddha's teaching is the realization of, of Nibbāna, it also that, it intrinsically in, incorporates, includes how we look after our body, how we look after our possessions, how we relate to our fellow uh, human, uh, uh, our human family. The, the people that we live with, the people in the world around us, the people in our, in our physical family. Uh, all of that is included. If we say, well, uh, I'm only interested in Nibbana, ultimate reality, that's all that matters, I don't care if there's a hole in my robe, pah, you know, who, <laughs> you know, what does that matter? Uh, the, the, the Buddha established the Vinaya and the, the many, many details, the, the sort of hyper-detailed training that we have, that uh, if the hole in the robe is bigger than a, a bed bug, you know, it's more than seven threads, then you have to mend it before dawn of the next day. Uh, <clears throat> that that is related to the the goal of the holy life, insofar as the Buddha recognized that if you don't pay attention to the material world, if you don't pay attention to your body, to your social relations, to your conduct, to your speech, then uh, uh, if that is not attended to carefully, then what we end up doing is we end up, uh, say, behaving in ways that are harmful to ourselves, harmful to others that cause you know, disruption and difficulty uh, in, in the world. We, we stop looking after our, our, our bodies, so then we get sick, and then others have to look after us. We, 
uh, we don't care about our speech or our actions, and then other uh, other people are kind of offended or upset, or we we cause a lot of friction and and difficulty, turbulence in the the world around us. Oh, the um, so the, uh, the reflections on on the the robe. Uh, it's a uh, I feel is it's not just something that is circumstantial. But uh, these are, are very, uh, say, important considerations to to bring to mind, and that uh, we we can be dismissive of that, or we can we can look and see what the, the kind of um, symbolism there is for us, and that uh, uh, the way that we um, say fit together with the other people that we live with, uh, also the uh, the way that our um, uh, see, our attitude is towards the material world, towards each other. The way that we we care for our our requisites, our living space, just as with our, our robes, we uh, we are in, told to keep them uh, to keep them well laundered, well cleaned, to keep them repaired, to uh, to look after them in a good way. Then it also says, well, uh, how how do we take care of our living space? What does our, our room look like? What does our kuti look like? Yeah, have we got stuff lying around? You know, is the rubbish bin filled to overflowing? Have we got piles of, of dirty laundry kind of accumulating in different corners? Uh, is every every horizontal surface covered with with uh, unwashed teacups and uh, you know, books and and uh, <coughs> you know, half finished work tasks? What's our living space like? Do we do we take care of that in a good way? Yeah, Lumpur Chah used to encourage the standard of whenever you leave your kuti, you should leave it in a state that uh, you should be happy to, if you, if you drop dead, that you should be happy for people to find you in a, in a tidy space. That, uh, you should leave it as you would like it to be left after you've uh, passed away or after you've left uh, to not come back. That you should, say, leave the place you know, clean and tidy and, and not think, well, I'll get to that later. I don't have to do that now, but just to, to leave it uh, tidy and clean and, and well ordered uh, as if that was what everyone was going to walk into and after you'd, you'd dropped dead and found you that it, so that they would say oh this person they were really modest they were really careful they were really tidy rather than wow how many bombs went off in this place <laughs> this is a disaster area you know, was, he, was he fighting with three other monks at the same time to cause chaos like this you know, what, a, what a disaster area uh, if we uh, take care of our material requisites, uh, the the robes that we wear, the space that we live in, these simple material concerns, then the 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 effect that that has is something that is a is direct and immediate. That if we want to say develop meditation in a good way, if we are careless and and uh, unmindful. Of looking after our robes, our living space, uh, then and <clears throat> those are things that we we sort of dismiss or say don't really matter. Then that has its effect of, upon the mind, and that the more that we are, are, are careful and uh, attentive, uh, modest in the way that we look after our uh, our robes, our living space, our clothes, uh, then we find that that has a, a very uh, clarifying and beautifying effect uh, on the state of mind. When we sit down to meditate, then there, there's a, a, a great support for wholesome states of mind to arise. Another of the things about the robe that uh, is interesting is that the Buddha referred to this as the, the, the robe as the banner of the arahants. This is, this is the, kind of the, the flag uh, uh, of the arahants, and the, the Buddha was a soldier before he was a monk, so he used a, a lot of of military images. So just as in, in an army, the an army goes into battle you know, holding the flag up, and the flag is something that's that's very uh, precious. So that uh, people in 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 war, that uh, the the standard bearer, the person who's holding the flag, would be very uh, kind of important. And if the if the the flag was knocked down into the mud, then others would would gather around and hold it up again to to kind of keep it in, held high and to be a uh, a kind of um, symbol 
and a guiding force for the uh, for the army. Uh, the Buddha transferred the the image of the the the, the banner of that you carry into war as uh, the the banner that we wear. This is the the, the flag of of the arahants, the flag of, of enlightenment. So that uh, looking after the robe is is looking after that that symbol of uh, of enlightenment, the symbol of of the possibility of arahantship, and so that. Uh, again, looking at the the robe not just as a kind of bit of cloth that doesn't really matter, but to to respect it, to to look at it as the 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 banner of the arahants, the the real uh, Buddha's flag, whether it's a white robe or a dark brown robe or a kind of biscuit brown robe. This uh, the the banner of the arahants, the the kind of the flag that we wear into uh, uh, into the into the world. And it's a, a a reminder for ourselves that it's the sort of most obvious symbol of the Buddhist monastic Buddhist training is uh, is this robe and the the qualities that, that it symbolizes. The the Buddha used many of these um, so, uh, ways to help bring our attention to uh, to skillful. Uh, say ways of uh, living in the world to uh, to look at the the objects that we we need uh, as human beings and to say uh, not just be be casual or to to kind of be um, using things in an unconscious way but to be say wisely reflecting literally wisely reflecting on the the things that we uh, we need to recognize yeah we need food we need shelter we need robes we need medicine but to always to be using those with re, with respect and with restraint uh, for the purpose of supporting our our lives to help that spiritual goal to be uh, to be realized. Oh, many years ago, when uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato went to, to spend some time at uh, the monastery of Ajahn Buddhadasa, then uh, as, uh, when he was a, a student in Berkeley, uh, he was uh, a, a, um, did a master's degree uh, in uh, Asian Asian history in in Berkeley, and then in the late. Uh, uh, late fifties, early sixties. Then that was a place of great, uh, um, say, social reform and rebellion. And uh, at, uh, particularly the early sixties was a time of tossing out uh, many, many social conventions. And so then uh, uh, that was the, the world that uh, that Lumpur Sumato had lived in before he entered into monastic life. And then uh, going to Wampapong, training under the guidance of, of Lumpur Cha. Then that that was part of his background was to sort of kick, you know, throw out, throw out all the rules, just be a free spirit, and he he loved the teachings of to read the teachings of Krishnamurti and the kind of freewheeling Zen teachers um, that were uh, uh, um, uh, uh, around in the uh, in the early sixties, and that kind of um, uh, say. Uh, uh, iconoclastic, or the, the 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 kind of spiritual uh, approach that uh, say look down upon rules and regulations, or ain't, uh, or uh, say structures that came down from from past centuries, and was focused on the idea of a, being a free spirit, being being un, unhindered, un, unlimited by social forms and. Uh, that was something that was very appealing, uh, having grown up in a, in a very narrow, um, conservative Christian family, then coming to Berkeley and kind of bursting out of that. Um, uh, I, I hope he, uh, he he probably wouldn't mind me sharing with you that he and, he and his wife of the time were known as Mr. and Mrs. Outer Space. <laughs> it was a local nickname for them in, uh, in Berkeley, and... Um, so he was, you know, obviously was a, a colorful character. So when he came to Wabapong, he was from that, had come from that kind of uh, freewheeling um, spiritual uh, approach. And uh, then meeting with Lumpur Cha and uh, recognizing the, uh, the, the 
the great benefits of, of being under the guidance of a teacher and using the the, the structures of the Vinaya discipline. And at Wobapong in those days, as today, there was a very, very uh, say, uh, refined standard of conduct in the way you look after your robes, where you, the way that you uh, look after your living space, uh, having fewness of needs, a uh, very precise way that you uh, you put your robes on, you, you the way you carry your shoulder bag, uh, the way that you pick it up, the way you put it down, the way that uh, you do everything was you know, very, uh, uh, say, closely and uh, carefully monitored and uh, and guided. And then when uh, he went to go and stay with Ajahn Buddhadasa, then he was surprised that Ajahn Buddhadasa didn't make so much of those uh, fine details of, of etiquette, uh, the refined uh, aspects of, of form in the monastery. And uh, <clears throat> and when he asked Ajahn Buddhadasa about this, he said, you know, your monastery is a forest monastery, but you seem to have a much more kind of freewheeling standard than there is at Wabapong. In a way, it's a, a, you know, a little bit more... That kind of free-form spiritual style, and uh, and Ajahn Buddhadasa said, "Then yeah, that that's right, uh, because it, you know, the only uh, dis- uh, the only discipline that's really needed is to be mindful. If you're if you're genuinely mindful enough, then that will uh, enable you to be uh, as disciplined uh, and as uh, say and as o- austere uh, as you need to be. It'll it'll show you uh, how little you need, and it'll show you." how to relate to the material world, how to relate to other people. Just you know, As long as you're mindful, then that, that covers everything. So that was uh, 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 a cause of great doubt then for the young Ajahn Sumato. He thought, oh, well, how does that work? Because he seems to be really confident and he's very, very wise. And Ajahn Chah really respects him, but his standard is, is, is quite different from Wapapong, where Ajahn Chah wants us to follow every single little tiny detail of the Vinaya and Ajahn Buddhadasa seems to be much more broad and, and, and open. So how do these how, how do these work together? And so then when when uh, Lumpur Sumedho went back to to Wabapong and sort of nursing his doubt, carrying his doubt with him, <laughs> trying to to understand uh, <coughs> these principles. And he explained this to Ajahn Shah. Ajahn Buddhadasa says, you know, really, uh, all, all we need to do is to be mindful and that the, you know, the vinaya is not so important. The Dhamma is the most important thing. And the vinaya looks after itself as long as you're mindful. Then Ajahn Shah famously said to him, Tuk temai ching, ching temai tuk, which means it's true, but it's not right. It's right, but it's not true. And uh, <laughs> so that, uh, and the, uh, then, so I think he left the young Ajahn Sumedho for a, to, to ponder that for a few moments. Okay, Does he understand what I mean by that? <laughs> but then he went to explain uh, how, yeah, in principle, you can say that that's true, but on the practical level, uh, you know, on, the, uh, on the level of worldly activity, uh, uh, the, the actuality of how we are and, what, and the things that guide our lives, you know, they don't work in the same way that... Um, or as T.S. Eliot put it, between the idea and the fact, there falls the shadow. But, uh, yeah, you can say that in principle, but the structures are, are also uh, there um, in, uh, uh, in the form of the vinya to help that mindfulness to be developed to, to in order to support that quality of mindfulness to be cultivated and to be sustained and to really help the mind to be fully aware and mindful uh, in the face of, of all its different uh, moods and uh, and uh, in the array of perceptions of being with what we like, what we dislike, what we're comfortable, when we're uncomfortable, and so forth. So that uh, <clears throat> that uh, I feel is uh, really uh, uh, an important principle. Many of us, as, as Westerners, uh, come out of a Western cultural background. Then many of us have had more of that freewheeling uh, sort of no form or no structure. A kind of conditioning and that can be quite attractive to us and we can say relate to the the monastic form or the the rules and regulations of the monastery the 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 routine as something that we we, we resent or is it's kind of it's uh, it's uh, too tight or like what is wrong with letting there be a hole in your robe for a week or two you know it's not it's not going to stop the sun coming up in the morning i mean it's uh, it's not going to be the end of the world uh, you know, 
why why should it matter that much or if i haven't cleaned all the teacups in my in my in my kuti you know yeah, i'm not going to uh, i'm not going to keel over uh, uh, dead or be swallowed up by the earth out of bad karma for some kind of uh, terrible crime on account of an unwashed teacup i mean come on <laughs> but uh the um uh the way that uh, it, it works uh, and as Ajahn Chah was pointing out, that uh, yeah, you can say that it's uh, it's right, but it's not true. It's true, but it's not right. That yeah, that uh, uh, if we were really mindful, then it would look after itself. But to be really mindful means that you're an arahant. <laughs> that uh, and uh, so that we adopt the uh, the behavior of an arahant by following the the the, the precepts by polishing our conduct. Uh, in order to to live in a refined and modest and careful uh, way, a thoughtful and uh, say well, in an orderly way, a sensitive way, because by following the behavior that helps us to uh, cultivate the uh, the the qualities uh, of purity of heart, so that the uh, uh, it works in in both directions. So that if we are more mindful. Then we'll be more more restrained. But if we're more restrained, it helps us to be mindful. It's a so there's a it's two way traffic really. So in this respect, along this same theme, one of the teachings I like to to quote and say the lay community taking the eight precepts on the the observance days like this, and the for the monastic community on the full moon and new moon days, then we refresh our precepts. That the uh, uh, the oppositor, the uh, the uh, the moon day observance, was established by the Buddha, um, and the the form of the eight precepts was explicitly structured as a a, a way of uh, particularly helping the lay community uh, and but establishing a, a basic monastic form on the principle that this is how arahants behave. And so if one day a week, if the lay community adopt the behavior of the arahants, then as the Buddha said, that will be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. So there's a very interesting sutta called the Upposita Sutta, where it describes the Buddha formulating this as a training. He said, uh, so that there are many different ways that different religious groups have a holy day or a Sabbath day, different things you can focus on. So when the Buddha was considering what can the, the lay community focus on, uh, for the um, for their observance day, for the these weekly lunar days, the full moon, the new moon, the two half moons, then this was what he he settled on. This is what uh, sort of took shape in his own reflections as a a, a useful and supportive form, because he said uh, all their lives, the arahants never deliberately take the life uh, of another living being. It's impossible for an arahant to deliberately take the life of another living being. So wouldn't it be good for the lay community one day a week to uh, adopt this this uh, uh, this conduct? And in that way, they will be living as the arahants do, and that will be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. So too with n- uh, not taking what's not given, with celibacy, with uh, refraining from lying, refraining from intoxicants, uh, only eating in the, the morning time, refraining from entertainment, beautification and adornment, and having a, a low and slim, simple sleeping place. You know, for each one of these, the Buddha says, all their lives, the arahants uh, say, refrain from lying or refrain from sexual activity, they, uh, they refrain from entertainment, beautification, adornment, and so on. And by adopting the behavior, then a person... Say so in that moment they are acting as the arahants do, and that will be the, for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. So then we can consider: well, why is that for our long-lasting welfare and happiness? It's because if we take a, a, the precept to say refrain from lying, then for a, for that day we're, we're very careful with our speech and we don't exaggerate or lie or deceive or seek self-advantage through bending the truth in any way. Then at the end of the day, you can recognize, well, this is great. I feel kind of good about myself. Or, you know, this is a, 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 a beautiful feeling in the heart that I haven't said anything that was untrue. I haven't said anything that was, was deceitful through the whole day. Ha! Ah, 
similarly with refraining from killing no living being has been had their life ended or has been harmed through my actions during the course of today <sighs> yeah and, and so forth with the with the precepts oh the in relationship to food i just had what food i needed in the morning the rest of the day i didn't have to think about it <sighs> no cooking no washing up <laughs> the stomach's not full when i sit down and meditate in the evening <sighs> So then by seeing the positive and helpful results of following those behaviors, then the individual has the direct experience. Oh, if you act in this way, here are the tangible uh, and directly knowable benefits. Look at this. And, and similarly, when we, we uh, say reflect uh, in this way or, or use this form of training, it helps us to see that, oh, the... Uh, and the principle that this is how the arahants behave, then uh, it changes the perception that we can have about uh, the precepts and, and uh, their their origin or their source. So rather than uh, I want to be able to, freedom means being able to do whatever I do, uh, whatever I want to do, I can follow every desire or every impulse, that's freedom. Uh, we might think of freedom being in that way, if I had enough money and I had enough kind of, uh, say, uh, courage or uh, enough, um, uh, say, uh, ability. I could every desire I have, I could just follow it. You know, every uh, uh, aversion I had, I could just act on it. I could just do whatever I like. I can be a free agent, a free being. So that's often how uh, in society people think of freedom: the, the the ability to just follow every every impulse, every desire, whenever you like. But what this principle points to is that uh, freedom has a very, very different quality. The essence of freedom doesn't come from being able to gratify every desire, but rather the uh, freedom comes from being able to understand every desire, every every aversion, every fear, uh, every self-centered impulse, and to know for what it is and to, to not uh, let the heart be dominated by that. So that freedom uh, the freedom of the arahant is to uh, to not be uh, say uh, guided or driven by any uh, impulse to to take the life of another living being it is not dominated by the desire to take things that are not given the uh, is not uh, the heart that's not dominated by sexual desire and so forth not it can't be governed by deceitfulness so when we, we look at the eight precepts in this way, rather than being a set of, of limitations on my, my natural and reasonable desires, it's a freedom from desire. It's a freedom from aversion, a freedom from, from jealousy and fear and, and hatred. So that the, <clears throat> the, the eight precepts then, in, a, in essence, rather than a set of limitations, it's an expression of your own pure heart. Uh, so when the heart is completely awake and aware, free of greed, hatred, and delusion, there's absolutely no possibility that you would want to take the life of another living being. It's just not there. You, to if the heart is is awake, is aware, is is free of greed, hatred, and delusion, there's no inclination, no possibility that you'd take something that belongs to another person. You wouldn't. You couldn't steal or take what doesn't belong to you in a, a, a in a deliberate way. The heart that is is uh, awake and aware, and and uh, fully say liberated, then it's not interested in any kind of sexual activity. That uh, is uh, something that just doesn't uh, doesn't apply, doesn't doesn't interest, doesn't have any appeal whatsoever. The, there's no inclination to to lie or to deceive. The the heart that is awake is aware, is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's incapable of lying, of deceiving. And the Buddha pointed the, the, these out in the talking about the qualities of an arahant. It's not like that they are an arahant, the awake mind is restraining the impulse to kill or to steal or to engage in sexual activity. Those those impulses they don't arise. It's, it's impossible for an arahant to fo- uh, to to be uh, for their mind to be to be guided or to be dominated by those those impulses. Those kind of movements of the heart so in this way the 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 eight precepts 
is in a, in essence learning to live from your own pure heart let you letting your actions your words your manner of relationship to the world be guided by your your own pure heart by the the uh, say the uh, the most sort of noble and wise and unselfish aspects of your being if the, if your life is guided by that then you'll naturally be living by the eight precepts or be guided by those principles and experience the freedom that comes from that so that by adopting the behavior then you're encouraging yourself you're you're say um, strengthening that um, capacity that we have for our, our words our actions our attitudes to be guided by that that pure noble heart or like i was saying this morning that quality of of being which is uh, pure and radiant and peaceful uh, when we uh, we say look at things in this way then we recognize that the 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 worldly structures help to support the insight into that which transcends the world and that which transcends the world helps to inform the way that we relate to the, the physical uh, aspects of our life they 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 work together and so as uh, uh, one of the attributes of the buddha is vijja charana sampano uh, which gets translated as impeccable in knowledge and conduct or perfect in conduct and understanding and i feel this is one of the most important uh, attributes of the the buddha to reflect upon that these the, the qualities of the buddha vijja charana sampano because if we just focus on vijja on enlightenment on us if we think oh only the unconditioned uh, matters only nibbana matters all the rest is just insignificant the rest is just gravy it doesn't really matter at all nibbana 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 uh, i'm only interested in the unconditioned then things are out of balance or similarly if you focus too much on the conditioned like no no proper behavior and uh, uh, the um, having everything you know uh, orderly and totally in, in accordance with the tradition having every detail of the of the form uh, you know the, the theravada teachings the pali canon the monastic form uh, doing everything properly and right you know that's what matters the charana the conduct uh, if it tilts it tilts too much in that direction if you, that that's given too much strength then uh, again things get out of balance you get too fussy and anxious uh, if you tilt too much towards the unconditioned, you get too kind of spaced out and insensitive. <laughs> so they need each other; they work together. And in fact, I would say they're, they're two sides of the same coin, like the front and the back of the hand. The vijja and charana they work together. The the awareness informs the conduct. The conduct informs, uh, supports the the awareness. Maybe a last uh, thing to say then on this respect, another piece of advice that Lumpo Cha gave to, to the young Ajahn Sumedho was uh, uh, has often been quoted how he said to, to Ajahn Sumedho one day, Sumedho, you must be very confused. And, he said, and uh, so, of course, he said, to, uh, why is that, Lumpo? You know, not feeling particularly confused at that moment, but you know, Lumpo looked at him and said, Sumedho, you must be confused. Well, Tamai Lumpo. Well, because the Dhamma is all about letting go, but the Vinaya is all about holding on. Right? Yeah, that's right. Isn't that confusing? He said, yeah, actually it is. <laughs> Come to think of it, now you put it like that. Yeah, that's confusing. And then he thought that uh, Lumpo Cha was going to go into a, a lengthy and um, uh, and uh, and detailed explanation of... of um, yeah, how the one relates to the other but all he said was well, when you figure out how those two work together you'll be fine <laughs> so that's really the 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 task that we have living with the, our bodies living with our personalities living with our our robes our living spaces the 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 jobs that we have the our roles in the the in the community whether we're in the office or whether we're in the kitchen or whether we're in the sewing room or whether in the in the temple uh the this is the the task that we have how to the the vijja and the charana can work together how the dhamma and the vinaya can work together the conduct and the and the wisdom element they work together and so i feel the the middle way the that the buddha described is very much a an informed and integrated meeting of those qualities that the the uh the the uh 
So the aspect of Dhamma is not limited by the 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 uh, the conditioned world, and the conditioned world uh, is illuminated uh, by the Dhamma. They 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 work together so that they. Uh, and in a way, this is the, the legacy that we have of the Buddha and the Buddha's way is that it's a uh, uh, a way that say has a goal of that which transcends the world, transcends time and location, individuality. That nibbana is free of of any kind of conditioned ba- boundary, any kind of limitation. Uh, but in these lives that we have with these, these bodies, these personalities, this place, these buildings. That they, uh, it's through the agency of these structures and these forms, this life that we have, these buildings that we have, these bodies, these robes that we have. It's through the agency of these structures that that uh, quality of the unstructured, the unformed, the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated that that can be realized. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. <laughs>